Addicts in the Dark is presented by Simply Sober, empowering recovery through apparel and support. Visit simplysober.biz. It has been said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. Here, we connect anonymously. This is Addicts in the Dark with Quick Nick. So whether you like what you hear or not, we want to hear from you. Share your thoughts and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And to tell your story about addiction or to stay up to date with the exclusive deals from our sponsors, be sure to head over to addictsinthedark.com to learn more and to join our community. It's Caller 34 and their story about addiction. Addicts in the dark. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for calling. Yeah, absolutely. So no names, no locations. And if you're ready, tell me your story about addiction. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I grew up in a small conservative town in the the Midwest in the United States. Had a pretty middle class family. Mom and dad stayed together. I had a big brother. Um, Throughout my childhood, I was involved in sports. I, we had a family farm to run around on and, you know, everything looked good from the outside, had everything I ever, I ever needed really. Things got a little dicey when I was around seven or eight, I had a pretty traumatic childhood event. Uh, it was one of those things I never spoke about it. Never, never told anybody, uh, until 25 years later. Um, when I was about seven or eight, um, I had a friend in the neighborhood. He was a few years older than me. Um, no, probably just a year older than me. And um, there was some sexual assault, let's call it that. If, um, you know, at that time I kind of, I guess I considered it consensual and didn't really know what was going on. But this voice or this uh, line of like, well, if you want to be my best friend, that's what you have to do, uh, kind of always rang through me. And, you know, it was, it was inappropriate touching for that age. Um, and I think that was really the first time I learned to compartmentalize these things, um, block out the bad thoughts and just kind of, um, keep trucking on. Um, my family was great growing up, you know, but both parents worked a lot, two jobs and, you know, they gave what they knew how to give. Um, like I said, I had an older brother. He, he kind of got into a little trouble when I was younger. So I felt like that always kind of gave me a pass on things, kind of learned how to get away with things from him. Um, more so what not to do to get caught. And I guess fast forward to early on in high school, I've got these raging hormones, uh, you know, from the first time I tried sex, drugs, alcohol, um, I realized I was really constantly seeking that, that rush, that dopamine, whatever it was. I kind of look back now and realized how I wasn't ever really focused on the sports or the school. And, you know, I kept up good enough grades and good appearances, but I definitely don't think I, I put myself out there and definitely didn't try as hard as I could have because I was always preoccupied with those other things. So we were pretty middle class, and so I wasn't spoiled with material things, but I 
do look back and think I was kind of spoiled with a lack of consequences. Anytime I did get in trouble, it kind of, you know, short grounding and then kind of things went to the wayside and we never really talked about it. It was just, don't do that again. You know better. And that really wasn't enough to stop teenage me from doing anything. So throughout high school, you know, I'm drinking and I'm smoking weed on the weekends. I thought everybody else doing it made it okay. So, uh, yeah, I go to college, I go for five years, and I end up with two degrees, and, you know, everything looks great. I'm the second one in my family outside my brother to ever graduate from college. So then, um, let's see, I'm, I'm 22, I'm living alone, I'm in a very toxic relationship that is completely based around sex, drugs, and alcohol. And at that point, I'm, um, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm a craft beer connoisseur. Uh, it's how I'm framing it in my mind. This is probably, I don't know, 2012, 2013, when kind of breweries are getting started up, these microbreweries. Um, I just thought it was, you know, it was a hobby. It was something you could bond with people about. I look back on that and just see how much I was isolating. Uh, you know, if I'm going to the bar on the weekday after work or after class, uh, I'm thinking I'm an intellectual connecting with these other college kids at the bar. But, um, uh, you know, and very well may have been that for a little while. But then I remember when I started picking up a six pack of tall boys on the way home. And, you know, that was what my dad did. That's what was normal in, in um, the rural area I'm from. That was what people did and was totally normal. I, I never thought anything different of it. And, you know, then I, uh, I graduate. I have a degree and um, my other one I went back for to become a nurse. I'm, uh, I got my bachelor's in nursing. So I'm an RN and I, I moved to our state capital, big city. I'm working as a nurse. Uh, I have this nice apartment. I have a car. I have disposable income. You know, I've got some student loans, but outside of that, I am, I'm like sitting pretty and I'm 22. So I'm, you know, I'm going to live it up. I'm partying pretty regularly. I'm really diving deep into that six pack on the way home, you know, when then I'm sitting in traffic and it's like, well, that's there and I could probably have one for the road. And, you know, back then it was just, I, I knew it was wrong. I'm, I knew this was a terrible idea, but there was just that thought was in and out of my head so quickly. You know, with the craft breweries, talk about the glamorization of alcohol. And in a lot of places, you can't even sell flavored cigarettes, but beer companies can use attractive packaging and catchy slogans and unique flavors, all which obviously create the perception that drinking is trendy and cool. Absolutely. And these brewery tasting rooms and shit, it all just reinforces the idea that drinking is a hobby. I agree with that. Meanwhile, menthol cigarettes are illegal. Like what? Yeah, there's that different social aspect of it, not just I'm social because I'm a little tipsy, but social because we have this in common. I can immediately see that you're drinking this beer and what do you think about that? You know, I don't, you know, imagine in the early 90s people were talking about, oh yeah, how, how's that Bud Light taste? You know, what what notes are in that? How, what hops are you know, they're brewing in that. Uh, there definitely wasn't that conversation. And like you said, yeah, it just totally sensationalized it and really, uh, really made it a hobby more so. So, um, 
I'm down in this new city and I'm, you know, kind of out in the big city, kind of nothing holding me back. And right? I can do whatever I want every single day. I have uh, an income stream. I have a respected career. And that, I think, gave me permission to do whatever I wanted. So, uh, like I said, I'm an RN. And, damn, these patients, they really like this Dilaudid stuff. They really like this morphine and, and this fentanyl we're giving them when, you know, they break a bone, they're, uh, they have a kidney stone, their, you know, pancreas is shot. And so I'm like, I wonder what that's like. And, it, you know, if you've ever worked in the hospital atmosphere, you know that there's a lot of um, medical waste, right? And so the vials that the medications come in are, are not the full dosage. A lot of times you're pulling out some and then kind of disposing of the other with the remainder of the dose in it and you know you have to have another nurse sign off on that but hospitals are short staffed they're busy there's more patients than ever um so people are kind of just signing off and and walking out the door and that gave me a real quick opportunity to start throwing some things in my pocket and um you know it went real quick and i I know how to inject a needle. I do this every day on patients. So um, the first time I tried opiates, I mean, I was hooked. I, I knew everything they said, right? Every drug class I ever had or movie or book I ever read that talked about, you know, staying away from the needle. There's no going back from that. And, you know, I justified all this, right? I had the job, the car, apartment, and they DUIs. So I, I was the exception. I could just do this recreationally. Soon after that, my life became around functioning for my three 12-hour shifts a week and, you know, getting as effed up as possible uh, every other day. And, you know, I, once again, not facing any consequences. Uh, I'd go into work hungover. Nobody would notice anything. Um, you know, I'm working night shifts. So I'm, I'm getting off work at 7 a.m. And like I said, I'm in a big city. There are 24-hour bars. There are bars for night shifters. And that's just, I'm like, oh, I'm just meeting these interesting people with these stories. And I'm some, you know, going on some wanderlust. And I would say maybe maybe a year into doing the opiates, it was um, really, it was that crime of opportunity. Right? I could get it when my patients had extra doses or some, you know, leftover waste. But I, I didn't know a guy, you know, that was slinging heroin or anything on the streets or driving down to the hood. Uh, I'm just happy to play pharmacist because I'm this educated nurse that is doing this every day. And I, I know, like, oh, I, I'm not going to overdose possibly or anything from this. So I, I'm going to a few different nursing jobs. I'm working my way up the ladder. And I finally get my like, dream job, the job I always wanted at school. Um, I'm working in the emergency department. And I got my dream job. And, you know, I, I'm working day shift now after five years of night shift. Um, and that was going to get me to stop. I think maybe I remember like two shifts in, I was like, I, I took some and I was like, well, yes, we're back to this. The whole time I'm drinking ridiculous amounts. You know, I'm, I, I love the idea that addiction is this progressive narrowing of things that make you happy. Because eventually there was, I was getting all these things. I was getting the promotion. I was getting these nurse of the year awards. I was very respected at work. Um, but I still felt like shit because I was harboring the secret. I knew, um, I knew I had this problem. I knew I'm hiding everything, but 
still not enough for me to quit. And uh, I understand your need for secrecy while you were actively in this addiction. So other nurses were obviously not aware of your situation. However, mm-hmm. it's also known that opioid addiction amongst others in your profession is common. Yeah, it is um, surprisingly common, as I later found out. I worked with a few people that I knew had um, gotten busted for the same thing. And I was able to sit there and put on this face, oh my gosh, can you believe that? How crazy is he? How crazy is she for doing that? You know, I had everybody fooled. And I, I was looking at what they did and saying, okay, well, I have to make sure I don't do that. You know, this is the unspoken issue that a lot of people want to uh, sweep under the rug. And I, I certainly wasn't the first, and I'm certainly not the last. So a few years into that, um, I'm working in healthcare. I, I meet the girl, uh, this incredible girl. She's from this amazing family. She is, you know, because I have this harsh inner critic, she's just so far out of my league. She's now my wife. And, you know, I met, I met her and I didn't stop, right? That was going to be another one of my rules was when I met somebody that mattered enough to me, I would stop. We ended up moving in together and that was going to be it. Oh, I couldn't possibly do this around her and live with her. Didn't stop me. We buy a house thinking, okay, we're going to change scenery, um, buy a house. Um, didn't stop. I had, I had everything I wanted inside that house. Uh, but I always ended up after my shift, uh, picking up a few beers at the gas station and, you know, hitting the opiates and drinking a beer in my truck behind the gas station. And even though, as you put it, you basically had everything you ever wanted. Some, in fact, argue that individuals who've achieved success and wealth may be more vulnerable to addiction, the pressures of success, the constant need to perform and the fear of failure can create a cycle of stress and anxiety that may lead to addiction. Mm-hmm. Is that something you can relate to? Yeah. I had lost any power of choice. Every morning when I woke up hungover, I would say, oh, okay, that was the last time. That was the last time I'm doing that. And it would always be around 11 a.m. noon, and those thoughts start creeping in. And then I remember it would be about three thirty, four o'clock, and my shift over at seven and I was ready to go. There was, I was just stalling for the last three hours until I could uh, get out and get messed up. And I, you know, look at the physical, mental, emotional exhaustion. It took me to scheme all of that, to be able to pull all of that off and, and fool everyone in my life. I had been doing this for years at that point and not a single soul knew. I had never even really gotten close to being caught. You know, then what do you know? There's a baby on the way and I have a new job, right? So I'm going to do this geographical cure. I moved to a uh, pharmaceutical sales role. I'm uh, basically selling and educating people on antibiotics, right? So I'm like, I'm out of the hospital. I'm going to be away from all that. And wouldn't you know, I still kept that, uh, that old job per diem. And I'm still going into hospitals. And I'm basically, I'm finding a way. I'm making more money than I ever thought I would make. And I am just as miserable as I've ever been because it's just consuming my life. That's all it was. 
you know, I knew everything was wrong and I was my own worst critic and I really just wanted to control everyone else. I wanted to make all the rules and, you know, I'm playing this game. I'm making the rules. I'm the only player and I'm still losing terribly. So, you know, what does that tell you about the game you're playing or the player you are? It, it, it was bad. You know, my, my mind was so unstable at that point. And I get to a point where there, there are times now my wife is catching on, right? I'm coming home thinking of alcohol. I am gaslighting to the definition of the word. She's telling me I need help. She's saying this is unhealthy. And she's saying that based on the drinking that she knows I'm doing, not even the, the drinking and drug use she doesn't know about. Uh, if there is an occasion where we're drinking, you know, she's a very low consumption drinker, glass of wine here or there. Uh, but if we're going out for dinner, we're with friends, I'm basically drinking, you know, I'm pre-gaming to go out to dinner with the family and drinking the entire time there. Um, and I'm kind of finding those friend groups that are accepting that, uh, a lot of my friends weren't, you know, they were, um, not in relationships or they'd always been heavy drinkers. They weren't, um, you know, they didn't have a care in the world. They could drink as much as they want. And I was kind of following suit with that. We'll dive back into the phone call in just a minute. I just wanted to take some time to talk about something that has been essential in my personal journey to mental health and well-being. Therapy. As most of you have probably figured out, I've struggled with addiction in the past. And while it's been a challenging road, therapy has been a crucial tool in my recovery. That's why I'm excited to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. When I was struggling with addiction, I found it difficult to find a therapist who I could connect with and who specialized in addiction recovery. With BetterHelp, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. I was impressed by the variety of options available for communication with your therapist. Text, chat, phone, or video call. As someone who is always on the go, the convenience of being able to message my therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it was convenient for me was a game changer. One thing I love about BetterHelp is that if your therapist isn't right for you for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. This helped me find a therapist that understood my struggles and was able to give me the support I needed in recovery. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality that you expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. So if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, depression, anxiety, or any other mental health issue, I highly recommend giving BetterHelp a try. As a special offer for our listeners, you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash quicknick. That's betterhelp.com slash quicknick. I would say it was sometime early in um, 2020, right? And, and this COVID is happening. And I'm I'm like finally getting caught enough where I say, okay, well, 
I I should you know get some sort of treatment, right? I'm I'm an alcoholic and I just recreationally use drugs, so I'm just going to go into a rehabilitation center and tell them I'm an alcoholic and I binge drink and um, I don't drink every day though. I only drink like six days a week. Sometimes I would just have to get like one or two beers or a tall boy or something just to not even calm my nerves, but just get it over with. Cause it was like, you have to drink today. You know, you're going to, my mind is telling me this, like, just go get it over with. So I think it was, it was right after that I decided to go seek some help and it's COVID and they are like, okay, I should do a a PHP, a partial hospitalization program. And I said, okay, great. And they're like, oh, but it's going to be on zoom. So yeah, just make sure you're able to like have a good internet connection. And I'm like, okay, well, we'll see how that works. So I go, and I think it was maybe five days a week for three or four weeks. And I strung together about 40 days sober. I look back on um, some of my journal entries from back then, and I, I was doing very well. I was very happy and really coming to terms with what I needed. And then it's funny how it's just such a blur that I think, you know, it was right back when I went to the hospital, I ended up just going back to my same old ways, still just uh, stealing, you know, the opiates out of the waste bin, and things got worse than ever. I was just as uh, miserable as ever. I was restless, irritable, discontent. I was getting messed up on any kind of over-the-counter medication I could get. I was had a lot of autonomy at my job, and working in the hospital, you know, you're going in during COVID, you have a mask on, it's like nobody can could tell any difference. I had a short temper. I was still trying to be the perfectionist, but knew like the one thing holding me back, just unsatisfied, holding resentments against everyone. And baby arrived September of uh, 21. And I'm like, okay, I'm not drinking and I'm really slowing down on the opiate stuff because I'm not really having access to that anymore until one time I find myself in the old hospital I used to work in and basically from my understanding a nurse saw me called me out and I'm still per diem at that hospital at the time but not really working there or I'm a vendor for the hospital so later that day I get a very pointed call from human resources saying hey were you in the building today uh what were you doing there and you know I'm sweating bullets I'm lying I'm telling them uh yeah I was there yeah I don't know I don't know about any of that and they're like, okay, well, let's let's schedule a call. I probably want to ask you some more about this. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so I know that lawyers from the lawyers and HR from one of the largest hospital systems in the state, with that becomes the board of nursing, the DEA. They are all, uh, I'm not hearing from them, but, but they know. And I know they're not just going to let that slide. But in my mind, I'm thinking this is all going to go away, right? It's going to be fine. I'm just lying to myself about it. I'm thinking, yeah, they'll forget about it. Um, If they do call, I'll be able to get my way out of it. And yeah, that was just constant state of anxiety and stress over the next few months. Um, My wife knows I'm on edge. I tell her I'm super depressed. And then basically word gets out from the HR department. Nobody's talking to me, but people uh, in my wife's department in the hospital are finding out. And they stage a little intervention for her and say, hey, uh, they're talking about your husband at these meetings. 
And yeah, that's all private information that they, you know, professionally were not supposed to share. But when they're trying to protect their friend, I, I, I understand why they did it. So I think, uh, oh, it's been months since they called me. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm home free. And my wife calls me up one day and says, you need to come home. I said, what could this be about? Well, you just need to come home. And I'm like, I don't possibly know how she could know. So I'm not quite sure what's going on on the way home. And uh, I come in and, and she goes, well, tell me about this investigation in DM. She knew more information than I did. We had it out. I'm kind of trickle truthing some things. And I finally suck it up and just let everything out. And I tell her everything. And what she considers one of the worst days of her life coincides with that being the greatest sense of relief I've ever felt in my life. To put that out into the universe, yeah, I knew the worst was yet to come. But to actually say it out loud physically took the weight off of my shoulders. For years, I'd seen doctors, chiropractors, physical therapists about a neck issue I had. And I pretty much have not had it since I let go of that stress. Um, so my wife's like, okay, well, you need to get this figured out. She takes our three-year-old daughter and leaves. Create space between triggers and reactions with Melissa Armstrong Coaching. Go to strongarm.ca for more. So obviously people who engage in deceitful behavior do so to maintain their addiction, not because they're inherently dishonest. And so given how long you were able to hide such a powerful force in your life, it goes to show that addiction is a highly manipulative disease. Absolutely. Yeah, it ate me up inside every single day. Um, this was the woman I had, we'd been together six, seven years at this point. Um, my wife is one of the most intelligent people I know, one of the most perceptive, kindest, strong on her values, people I've ever met in my life. And if there was anybody that was going to pick up on it, it would have been her and I was still able to hide it. Um, so I, at that point, my cards are all out on the table. She's gone. I start looking into some options and, you know, dry of any substances for about three months at that point. But obviously there were pending things. There were secrets. I, I still felt terrible. And, you know, I ended up contacting the rehabilitation center I went to last time. And I'm still trying to save my, my job at this point. So I don't really go too much into, you know, how I'm getting this opiate habit. Uh, but they offer me like a five-day-a-week program. I can take medical leave from work. And I call my wife and tell her that. And she's, she's like, no, that, that, that's not going to do it. You need some serious inpatient treatment. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to be around you. So uh, I end up... 10 days later, I was on a plane to South Florida to a uh, really top-of-the-line rehabilitation center. Thank goodness for my wife's great insurance. And I just got a promotion at my pharmaceutical sales job. Uh, and I kind of, I mean, I don't want to say I ghosted them, but I said, hey, I need to take some medical leave. And I knew they couldn't ask why. And they were under the assumption it would be a week or two. And... Um, I was gone the full 12 weeks. So a few nights before I left, I am sitting at home. I'm miserable. I, my wife and my baby are gone. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to check out one of these Alcoholic Anonymous meetings. 
I haven't drank in, you know, over a year, but I, I'm going to go check this out and see what that's all about. And it had been suggested to me before, uh, specifically by my wife, but I was very um, averse to doing that. I was willing to try anything else. And I can now say it was the absolute last thing I ever tried and the first thing that ever worked. Um, I went to a few meetings. I said, okay, this makes a lot of sense. And then I went down to my recovery center where, uh, you know, I got there and the biggest piece of advice someone gave me was these are some of the best professionals in the business. Take their suggestions. Try not to worry about what's going on back home. Kind of believe that you can change. And with that, I was able to completely surrender everything, every, uh, every feeling, every regret, all the self-pity and shame I felt about myself. I was in this total self bondage for so long and I was able to just, okay, I'm going to let that go and felt really good to tell my wife everything. So when we go to this group therapy and I meet with my therapist, I'm going to tell them every dirty little detail. I'm going to probably feel all the shame and guilt of everything, but, um, you know, I'm here, I'm in a safe place. Uh, I'm in sunny Florida in the winter time let's give this, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go be like a rehab all-star and give it my best shot. So I, I remember on my first day there, there were some other nurses that were in there for very similar issues. There were CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. There were country music singers. There were people that were, you know, didn't have these high-profile jobs, but, and these people I would have considered, you know, addicts and junkies and alcoholics. Uh, previously in my life. And the second I sat down with them, I realized we have everything in common, emotionally, spiritually, uh, our lives, our day-to-day lives, jobs, families look completely different, but we feel the exact same way about things. And that made it so easy to open up. Uh, my therapist had told me, you know, your addiction is not about the amount of drug you do. It's about what you're risking when you're doing that. You know, I was risking my family, my career, my driver's license from all the intoxicated driving I did. And I was just saying, I was too smart for it, right? I was too smart to ever think that someone else could help me or that, you know, they could help me help myself. We're doing um, group therapy. We're doing trauma therapy. I'm dealing with the childhood trauma. I'm dealing with issues I've had with my family for so long, resentments I held on to. And then it gets to be, I'm there for 52 days. We're kind of working on an exit plan. And I'm calling my, me and my wife for, you know, rough phone calls at first when uh, I'm getting some contact with her after a week. And then slowly we're having calls together with my therapist and, and she's seeing some change, but still very skeptical, very uh, angry, justifiably angry that, you know, she's at home and she has to go back to work because she's off maternity leave. And we have a three-month-old baby, and this is, you know, this is not what she saw her life looking like. So, 52 days there, and I'm like, yeah, you know, they're they're clearing me. They're saying I'm ready to come home, and she's like, no, no, I don't, I don't think we're going to do that yet. So, uh, they say, well, you know what, you need to live in a silver living house down here. You need to, um, you know, what some might call a halfway house. I'm kind of in recovery central in South Florida. And um, there are possibilities everywhere. This is not what I ever grew up thinking, you know, a halfway house looks like. So 
uh, I go and live with uh, six other gentlemen in a sober living house for, I'd say, about another 50 days. So I'm gone. I was gone 102 days. Throughout this, every day, every single day in treatment, they would bring in an AA, Alcoholics Anonymous speaker, and have a meeting. Uh, when I got out, that was one of the rules of my sober living house was you had to go to the 90 meetings in your first 90 days. You had to try to get a sponsor. You had to really immerse yourself in that recovery community. And my first day out, I had what, you know, I kind of call a God moment. And uh, a guy who had come and spoken to us uh, was picking up my roommate to go to a meeting. And I got in and I was like, oh, you're that guy that came and spoke to us a few weeks ago. And I, I really liked the guy. So I got him as my sponsor. I started working the steps. I'm finding that I'm learning so much about myself and this idea that like the treatment portion, that's kind of discovery. You're finding out all this stuff about yourself. But the real recovery starts when you are uh, back out in the real world. When you have that ability to go walk into a bar and order a beer, nobody's going to stop you. And, you know, I'm, I'm down there by myself. I had some friends I'd made and they're good sober support, but I still had that free will, right? I, I still had to do my best to like minimize that free will. And for me in AA, uh, my higher power is a Christian God, right? I know that's not everybody's, but that's mine. And that's what works for me. I learned so much about spirituality and how I had to start creating these values for myself. I had to take pride in having integrity and having honesty and this sense of serenity that I felt. Um, you know, I, I have to let go of trying to control other people. I just, I need to find connection. I can't be isolating. I have to push myself outside my comfort zone. And later this month, it'll be one year since I came home. So um, a little over one year from opiates, and over two years from alcohol at the time we're recording this. And I can honestly say I've, I've never been happier in my life. I ended up going through the Board of Nursing uh, process. They offered me a program to get my license back. I declined it, essentially. It's still on the table any day. I want to go back to it. But I, not that I don't trust myself going back into that atmosphere. I was never happy in those jobs. This was my opportunity to kind of start new, really be able to live authentically. And, you know, I still feel a little shame and guilt about breaking this nursing oath that I gave. And so we have moved back to my small hometown. I lost my license. I spent about a year as a stay-at-home dad, and I have never been happier. I've simplified my life in so many ways. I am able to practice gratitude every single day. I wake up. I thank God for keeping me sober yesterday, help guide me, help me keep away from my self-will, and just kind of live a path that, you know, I think we're all destined to do something good, whether you think that's from God or the universe. But I'm finally able to do that authentically. No, I put everything out on the table. I still attend um, AA meetings weekly. I have a great sober support from that. Um, you know, I've had I've had slip ups, and not that I've relapsed, but I've slipped up on you know situations where I've lied or manipulated the addict behaviors that I'm still trying to unlearn. It wasn't all just going to happen 
because I went to some meetings and went to treatment, right? This is where the real work is, is, you know, looking inward, finding out what, what are my values? How can I uphold my integrity? How can I be, how can I show up best for my family? And I can say, actually, as of this week, I finally started a new job and I am working prevention and outreach for a local nonprofit that supports substance abuse, recovery, domestic violence, homelessness in the community I grew up in. I am making nickels compared to what I made previously in my other life, and I've never been happier. The uh, weight of my problems is, is so much easier to carry. I can feel totally comfortable and confident talking to people about my problems because I know that you know I, I can help them see that uh, these people you see going through these issues that you think are liars and manipulators and choosing to be addicts that they can recover. And I wasn't going to ever be happy unless I went through what I went through. And as terrible as I feel for the, the pain I inflicted on people, I'm, I really do feel like I am paying that forward now with my recovery and sobriety. And, you know, having uh, podcasts and communities to open up this arena and allow us people to uh, share our story, uh, it helps keep me sober. Trust is the hardest to gain and the easiest to lose. But what's even easier taking advantage of that blind spot with those who trust us the most. This caller's addiction led him to use his position of trust to take advantage of an easy opportunity. And that ease of access to powerful opioids allowed his addiction to be fed freely. Because who would suspect a registered nurse, a family-oriented father would steal leftover medication from his patients? Who would suspect a man who seemed to have everything going for him on the outside would be resting such demons on the inside? That's the siren song of addiction. It can drive us to unconscionable conduct that's otherwise completely out of character. I'm Quick Nick. Thanks for listening. Addicts in the Dark is brought to you in part by Melissa Armstrong Coaching. Check out Melissa Armstrong at www.strongarm.ca. That's www.strongarm.ca.